Well, good morning, church, in person, online. Uh, boy, what a, what a beautiful day to worship God. Uh, students, we uh, are so excited for you and so grateful for the ways in which you've dug into God's Word this weekend and building relationships. We love seeing the progress uh, that you've made on uh, our Building for the Better project. And uh, uh, it's a great week to talk about the risen Christ. Uh, it's a great week to talk about grace. And we're in this little two-week series on grace from the book of Titus. And I'd uh, love you to have your Bibles open to Titus chapter 3. Uh, Titus uh, is a protege of Paul. Uh, Paul planted some churches on the island of Crete and then sent Titus in to stabilize a chaotic situation. And uh, it wasn't an easy job, but Titus had a secret weapon, and that secret weapon is grace. And last week in Titus chapter 2, we talked about how grace is our teacher. And today we want to talk about how grace can surprise us uh, and surprise others. Um, grace, in other words, is a surprising thing. Grace is what we least expect. Grace is what we most need. And uh, what we're going to look at in, in chapter 3 is we're going to talk about uh, living this life of grace as a church, living it out loud, living it in, in public as well as in private. And so with that in mind, I want to read Titus 3, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and, to, and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. God bless the reading of his word. Titus teaches us, the, book of, or the letter of Titus teaches us that the gospel works everywhere. It works in the local church, as chapter one talks about, uh, as God calls out, uh, godly leaders to serve the church. It works at home uh, with all generations as older men and older women set examples for younger men and women uh, to reflect God's goodness in all seasons of life. And as we move into chapter 3, we discover that the gospel also works out of doors. The gospel doesn't just work in the family room and in the Sunday school classroom. The gospel works in the public square. The gospel can play a role in a city council meeting, uh, in a parent-teacher meeting, uh, in a Walmart parking lot, uh, at a Friday night football game, at a Tuesday night band practice. The gospel has a role to play in the boardroom. The gospel has a role to play in the break room. And it's all tied to the power of this grace that Paul writes about in the letter to Titus. And so to follow up last week, I want to talk about learning the lessons that grace wants to teach us or that Jesus wants to teach us. 
And, uh, and, and in our, our passage specifically today, I want to talk about an unconventional vision for public life. An unconventional vision for living this life of grace kind of out loud in the public square, so to speak. Now, I struggled with the wording, and I eventually settled on unconventional. But for a while, I toyed with the word unpopular. <laughs> uh, you see what you think, okay? Uh, but, but Paul is teaching the church to live in the public square that is, in, in a way, at, at the very least, it's, it's unconventional. And what the vision that Paul's describing in verses 1 and 2 is one that we don't, we don't see very often. Um, and, and it's certainly not something that you would just drift toward. <laughs> uh, if you're going to live out this vision, it's going to have to be very intentional. Um, and so see what you think about it. I want to put, uh, we're going to squeeze verses 1 and 2 on the, on the screen. And, and let's look at this again. It begins with the word remind. We'll make note of that. We'll talk about that in a second. Remind the people, remind the church to be subject to rulers and authorities, government leaders, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be obnoxious toward everyone. No, no, no. Always to be gentle toward everyone. Now, we know from the very first word, remind, that this is something we don't drift toward. It's, it's, it's not something we do subconsciously. It's something that someone's going to have to remind us to do. You know, there are probably things I don't have to remind you to do. Like if I were to say to our students, especially our leaders today, I want to remind you guys that I, you know, I don't want you to forget to take a nap this afternoon, right? I don't need to remind you. I need to remind you not to take a nap during the service or at least to snore quietly, but I don't need to remind you to take a nap. That's going to come naturally. I don't need to remind you as a church. Church, are you getting enough carbohydrates? Um, are you making sure that you're making room for French fries and mashed potatoes and cream corn in your diet? I don't need to remind you of that. We, we drift toward that very naturally. What we need to be reminded about in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, are the things we routinely neglect to do. Right? The things that Israel routinely neglected to do. The things the church routinely neglects to do. And that's this vision for the public square. Uh, and the first thing that we're told to do is to be obedient citizens. Now, it's true. Every now and then, maybe in the book of Acts, um, there are these moments. In the Old Testament, too, there are these moments where uh, the people of God are called upon to disobey the laws of the state. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're not going to bow down to your idol. Uh, you know, Peter, we're not going to stop preaching. Uh, you know, we, we're going to obey the laws of God and not the, not the laws of, of men and women. But, but, but most of the time, I would say the grand majority of the time, you and I are called upon to be obedient citizens, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey the laws of the state. Um, we're, we're, we're called to pay our taxes. We're called to obey traffic signs. I, I got some of you there, didn't I? Uh, we're called to be good citizens. That's one of the ways we live out the gospel. The second way that we live out the gospel in the public square is that we, um, we are ready to do whatever is good. Um, we, uh, we, we look for whatever positive contributions that we can make to our 
community, whatever positive contribution we can make to benefit our neighbors. It's Psalm 34, 14 says, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's a counter-cultural vision, isn't it? Sometimes even in church, that's a counter-cultural vision. Have you ever heard the uh, acronym, uh, is it acronym or acrostic? I always get confused. NIMBY, N-I-M-B-Y, you ever heard that? You know what it stands for? Not in my backyard. Do whatever you need to do to create a healthy community. Just don't ask me to help, okay? Uh, Fix the grid, fix the streets, fix the schools. Just don't inconvenience me, But Paul says a, a grace vision for you and me is that we're ready to sacrifice and do whatever's good for others and not just for our own home and, and property values. You see why I almost use the word unpopular instead of unconventional? Third, this vision of, of living grace out loud in the public square, it also involves public speech. Uh, you know, some Christians act as if if I'm aiming at the right enemy, it doesn't matter how I use my words. I can lie too. I can distort too. I can use uh, unnecessarily harsh language too to characterize my cultural or political enemy. But Paul says this vision of grace uh, affects our speech, that our words uh, should be truthful. Paul spent a lot of time earlier in this letter talking about the false teachers. The false teachers were the ones who used harsh and distorted and deceptive words in chapter 1. That's not what we're called to do as a church. And then if this vision feels jolting so far, (laughs) what about this last part? Peaceable, considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus speaking to those whom society hated, like the woman caught in adultery or the Samaritan woman at the well that everybody shunned or Zacchaeus, the tax collector that everybody murmured about and grumbled about, and yet Jesus says, I want to eat at your house today and so many others. We said this last week, church, that, 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 that God doesn't call us to be a mirror of the culture. And God calls us to be medicine for the culture. We're, we're called to be a colony of heaven This this earth is not our home. We're we're not called to be a carbon copy of the culture. And so at the the risk of offending, I want to say just a tiny bit more. I think some Christians in the public square draw their model more from the Old Testament than from the New Testament. Now, we believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but I think that, that some Christians in the public square, they view... The church is Israel, and they view non-Christians as Philistines, and basically it's a David versus Goliath, and therefore whatever we throw at our cultural enemy, it's, it's okay. But you and I are called to read the Old Testament in the light of Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, you know, all the Old Testament scriptures point to me. And Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Jesus taught us to bless those who hurt us. Jesus taught us to pray for those who persecute us. And the Apostle Paul knew that how we act out of doors (laughs) impacts the way people view Jesus. Do they view Jesus accurately or inaccurately? Well, oftentimes the way his followers speak and act 
causes people to have a false impression of who Jesus really is. And so Paul speaks to this unconventional vision of living as good citizens, good neighbors in our community. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are saying, Larry, if what you're saying is true, if, right, I'm not sure I'm happy about it. Um, and and I, I get it, right? Because this, doesn't, this lifestyle doesn't come naturally, and often it doesn't feel like fun. And that's why I think we really, really, really need what Paul says next uh, in Titus chapter 3. It's what I want to call an unexpected fuel for this vision of living grace out loud. An unexpected fuel. You know, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall uh, when Titus was sharing with his leaders there in Crete. He goes, well, uh, uh, we got a letter from Paul. Oh, okay, why don't you read it, you know? And, and when he gets to chapter three and, and uh, he's talking about the way that they want, the way Paul wants them to live in the midst of Crete and, uh, and, and, and maybe some of these church members are saying, does Paul even know where the word Cretan comes from? It, it comes from these people we live amongst, right? And, 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 and Paul wants us to do what? Right? And they, that's not fair. They can slander us, but we have to be gracious to them. Where's the justice in that? But look what Paul says in verse 3. At one time, he says, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's like Paul pulls the rug out of everybody in verse 3, isn't it? He says, you know those things you hate about your enemy? Well, guess what? You got a lot of that in you. (laughs) Especially those of you who came to faith in Jesus later, uh, you know, that was you. It's like Paul saying, do I need to walk you down memory lane here? Do I need to to ask you to remember times when your mind has been foolish, your heart has been driven by dark emotions? Do do I need to remind you when your will was enslaved to the worst of sinful and disobedient impulses? Do I need to remind you of some of your relationships that are characterized by, by wishing evil on one another and envying the good things that happen to one another? You see, sometimes we forget Sometimes we forget that the things that we struggle with most in our opponents are things that we, we deeply struggle with ourselves. Right? Sometimes we forget that the best things in our life are not merit badges. They are gifts of God's grace or they're gifts of gracious people who have surrounded us. Paul wants us to remember where we came from. And then as we continue um, into verse 4, Paul uses this uh, ordinary, it's an ordinary English word for us, but it's a brilliant Greek word. We talked about it last week. The, the ordinary English word is the word appeared. But the Greek word is epiphaniomai. Epiphany is the, uh, is the root idea. It's a bright showering of light. It's this huge surprise that comes to us. Imagine tonight that you're... Uh, walking the dog, say, around 9 o'clock at night, and uh, across the street somebody lets off a Roman candle, okay? That's an epiphany. That's a, that's a sudden showering of light. That's what grace is. And so Paul uses this word in verses 4 and 5. He says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, epiphanied, when the kindness and love of God our Savior went off like a Roman candle in the dark, 
God saved us not because of righteous things we had done, not because of our merit badges, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Grace is shocking. Grace is unexpected. Grace is God's kindness and love. That word kindness has the sense of sweetness about it, uh, as one commentator puts it. Uh, like, in, like Peter in 1 Peter 2 uh, reminds the church, that he says, you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. You've tasted the sweetness of the Lord. You've experienced salvation. Not self-salvation, you didn't save yourself. No, ultimate salvation comes outside of us. We were drowning and Christ rescued us. We were drowning and the Holy Spirit cleansed us, cleansed us on the inside just like the water of baptism cleanses us on the outside. This is where that vision for public life comes from. It comes from the Trinity, God the Father in his kindness, sending Jesus, his son, to die for us, to justify us, to forgive us, the Holy Spirit cleansing and renewing us so that we live with hope as heirs as, as, and so that we live not with despair. This is grace, and grace is fuel. I wonder if I can get a little personal here. It's been about six years ago or so that I discovered this uh, ministry that's, that's been really helpful to me, very helpful. Uh, it goes by the name of, of Mockingbird, um, and the, the reason it's called Mockingbird is because you know how a mockingbird doesn't sing its own song, it, it sings the song it hears, and in this ministry, Mockingbird sings another song. It sings the song of grace over and over again. And Mockingbird is a collection of Christians from all over the spectrum, uh, Christians who would disagree with each other on so, so, so many secondary issues, but are in lockstep in agreement that everything good in our life comes from Jesus. Uh, it's a ministry focused on grace. And like I say, about six years ago or so, I began to, to read about this ministry and later through some miraculous things even to write for it. But, but one of the things that initially appealed to me about it was I discovered that, ironically enough, the life of a pastor can often feel like a pretty graceless life. Does that sound surprising to you? It's true, sadly. Sometimes some of the most grace-starved people that I meet are pastors. I'm not saying that these pastors haven't accepted the gift of God in Christ and, and, and prayed to become a Christian. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying sometimes in day-to-day -day living, grace feels absent. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, when you're a pastor, everybody expects you to always be on your game. Sometimes I'll walk in late for a meeting and somebody who's going to the meeting will, will walk in right in front of me and they'll go, well, I'm not late. And I was like, no, we're both late, you know, but, but everybody expects, well, the pastor needs to be on time. Do they even know me? Uh, you know, but uh, sometimes pastors live with a sense of, of envy that Paul talks about in verse 3. We envy those pastors who are better preachers, who are better leaders, whose churches are larger, who, have, who baptize more people, who have much better hair, uh, you know. And, and, and what I discovered is if I live according to the law of other people's expectations of me, or forget that, just my expectations of myself, every day is going to be a disappointment because every day I fall below other people's expectations, my expectations. On the other hand, 
if I live in the kindness and love of God, if like the mockingbird I sing that song of Jesus and his grace over and over again, then no matter how much I struggle, no matter how much we struggle, every day can be a day that I swim in Christ's forgiveness where Christ forgives the worst about me and where Christ enables the best in me. And that grace, friends, for you and for me, that grace is a fuel. And that grace fuels us to do something that I want to kind of land on here. It's, It's not so much, this point three is really not so much a point as it is a plea. A final plea, or or what you might call an unapologetic appeal. And that's to live what I want to call the surprise party lifestyle. The surprise party lifestyle. What does that mean? Well, I think Paul is calling us to let shocking grace change the way we live. I think Paul is calling us to live a life of surprises. Um, Now, where am I getting that from? Well, well, let's let's look at verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and, and, and I want you to stress, stress is kind of like remind, <laughs> I want you to stress these things because we often forget them, so I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful, get this, to devote themselves to doing what is good. You might almost say what is surprising in a world of sin. These things are excellent and profitable for everybody. Remind, stress these things to the church, Paul says. These things don't come naturally, but they are excellent. They are profitable. They are good. It's it's doing the next right thing, as they say in in, in recovery ministry. It's uh, on on MLK weekend. It's it's returning the world's scorn by locking arms and and singing songs of, of praise. It's doing good works, which, by the way, may sound a little surprising coming from Paul, right? Because hasn't Paul spent most of the New Testament telling us, your good works won't save you, your good works won't save you, your good works won't save you, your good works won't save you. And now he's saying, do good works, do good works, do good works. What in the world is going on? What is Paul telling us? Well, it's true, even as he said in chapter 3, your good works won't save you. He saved us, verse 5 says, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. His mercy saves us. But his mercy saves us so that we might share his goodness with others. So that we might do good things for others and, and, uh, and, and shine his light. And that's, that's true throughout the letters that Paul writes to Titus and, and to Timothy. He says a lot about good works. In chapter 2, he wants widows to be cared for, but he also wants widows to have a reputation for prayer. He wants widows to have a reputation for good works. Uh, he wants every pastor to be a model of good works as well. And, and, and by these good works, people will experience the beauty of the gospel. And so I've kind of phrased this, the, the surprise party lifestyle. So I wonder, how many of you have ever planned a surprise party? Anybody? Surprise party? Oh. Usually begins with somebody's crazy idea, doesn't it? Somebody gets a gleam in their eye and says, what if, what if we surprised old Fred for his birthday? And it kind of gets talked about, and the idea 
build some momentum and then the practicalities have to be worked out like, well, when would we do it? And how would we get the word out? And are there any accomplices of Fred that we could recruit to kind of help us pull this off? And so you get really busy and you plan and you prepare and, and you do all this work and then and, and you spread the word secretly and you get the plan all worked out to, to intersect Fred's normal flight pattern. And then at just the right moment, Fred opens the door and you spring into action and you, you, you jump from behind couches and stairwells and, and what do you say? Surprise, Surprise right? <laughs> and when you do, ideally, if it all works well, you see this look on Fred's face and you're not sure if it's joy or terror, right? Because that's kind of what a surprise feels like. And in that moment, all eyes are on Fred. And, and, and I think if you're the planner of the party, you do all that work for this. <laughs> all that work is paid off, so to speak, for that look. That look makes it all worthwhile. Grace, friends, grace specializes in surprise parties. I mean, you could almost think of the triune God sitting up around a, a coffee table in heaven, right? and looking down on our plight. You could almost see a gleam in God the Father's eye and see his love for his well-pleasing son, Jesus, who volunteers to stage the surprise. And all the work the Holy Spirit does through the centuries, getting the word out through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses and David and, and, and the angel Gabriel. And, and then there comes Jesus. And, and in the beginning, right, only a few people, relatively speaking, saw the surprise, the joy, the wonder. In fact, some people thought the whole dream was gone when Jesus was being marched out to Calvary to die on the cross. And you wonder, how did Jesus keep fighting through? Hebrews says, for the joy set before him. What was that joy that caused him to keep suffering, to keep giving, 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 to keep praying for us until the very end? Was it that look? <laughs> was it that look on the faces of his disciples? Do you remember in John chapter 20? On the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, surprise! <laughs> Maybe he didn't say surprise. He actually said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and side. And the scripture says the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This is what grace does. Grace illumines the dark like a comet. We swim in that grace. We who've trusted Christ as our savior, we swim in God's kindness and God gets us in on the act as we plan surprise parties, large and small, every day. And as Jesus gets to see the look of shock and surprise, in the eyes of those who experience grace, as Jesus gets to see that moment when they are surprised by grace. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how 
thankful we are for your kindness and your goodness. Every good thing in our life, Lord, is something you've given us. We swim in grace. We breathe in grace every moment of the day. Everything, Lord, a gift from your mercy. And then, Lord, as part of your grace, you let us in on the act. You make us co-conspirators in the surprise party of grace. And Lord, it's unconventional and at times unpopular and at times difficult and at times challenging. But yet, Lord, we know that grace is miraculous and you're calling us to live grace out loud. So fuel us, Lord. Put that fuel of grace in our tanks, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.